folks, this is John Lawrence with Anesthesia Guidebook. In this episode, you're going to hear from Shane Garner on the five keys for achieving financial independence. This show was originally released in April of 2020 on From the Head of the Bed, and I'm pulling it forward to Anesthesia Guidebook on August 30th, 2021. I'm pumped Shane brought this intel to the podcast. Anesthesia providers are high income earners, but it's rare to see any formal training on financial literacy as part of core medical and nursing education or during anesthesia training programs. CRNAs and physician anesthesiologists get out and make great money, but often fail to apply basic financial principles like living below your means, becoming debt-free, and saving and investing for the future. It sounds like boring stuff, but these are some of the keys that will create freedom and peace of mind for your future. If you apply a fraction of what you'll hear in the next 30 minutes, you'll set yourself on a trajectory you can truly be stoked about, and you'll thank yourself down the road. You owe it to your future self to check this episode out and apply what you hear. Let me introduce you to Shane and then we'll get to it. Shane Garner is a CRNA who works in Ripon, Wisconsin and is passionate about teaching anesthesia providers on personal finance as well as regional anesthesia. He has a Bachelor of Science in Nursing from the University of Minnesota and graduated from Rosalind Franklin University with his Master of Science in Nurse Anesthesia in 2012. He went on to complete a fellowship in advanced pain management at the University of South Florida before becoming board certified in non-surgical pain management through NBCRNA. Shane is an adjunct faculty member at the University of Alabama at Birmingham's nurse anesthesia program and regularly instructs with Twin Oaks Anesthesia and Cornerstone Anesthesia Conferences. All right, with that, let's get to the show. Well, Shane Gardner, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. So I wonder if you would start by outlining the definition of what you consider financial independence to be. Well, John, thanks for having me on this podcast. Um, A lot of what we're going to be talking about is just my personal take based on kind of my philosophy in life and investing and different books that I've read and, and how it's worked for me to invest. So when we look at five keys to achieving financial dependence and, and what truly is financial dependence. And you can, you know, look things up on the internet, find different definitions. You know, a couple that I, that I like, the, the state of having sufficient personal wealth to live without having to work actively for basic necessities. An even simpler version would be your income covers your expenses. And then the one that uh, that I like that I think just sounds nice is freedom from financial worry. And there's, from a, uh, a numbers point of view, a lot of things you'll see quoted are if you can live on 4% of your investments per year, you can consider yourself financially independent. So that's just based on, a, you know, take all your retirement funds and if you're withdrawing out of there 4% every year and you can live on that, then you can consider yourself financially independent. And obviously there's things that can change in the future if the, if the current society that we live in and it, the bottom falls out, well, that stuff all goes out the window. But that can just be um, kind of a, a basic number that we look at. All right, folks. So I want to jump in to bring a little bit more clarity to what Shane and I are talking about. Financial independence in its clearest definition is having enough money so that you're free from having to work to cover your expenses. Most people think about financial independence as where they want to be when they retire. What's interesting about this is that financial independence and retirement don't necessarily mean the same thing. Retirement is a concept. It's something you have to define for yourself. But financial independence is simply a math equation. 
It's when your passive income exceeds your expenses. And the key is passive income. So Shane is going to lay out five basic steps for achieving financial independence. We talk a lot about SRNAs and CRNAs who are just getting started out of school, but these apply to anyone at any point in your career. So here's the five steps. One, set goals to live below your means. Two, pay yourself first. Three, avoid debt. Four, invest in low-cost index funds. Five, educate yourself. All right, let's jump back in. And here's Shane unpack these a little bit more. So let's start off with number one. Your first step is set goals to live below your means. So I know that a lot of SRNAs have embraced delayed gratification for years, right? As they've pursued their education and training. And folks, when they graduate, they're looking to spend some of that hard-earned money. So what would you say to new grad SRNAs in, in terms of advice on how to continue to live below their means and, and kind of temper their spending habits coming out of school. Yeah, exactly, John. Everyone that has been a student for the most part, they've you spent those few years in school. A lot of people took on loans. You live below your means. Maybe you rented. You got by on not going out to eat, not going on vacation for a few years. So you've, you've been sacrificing a better part of your, your career or maybe your life as you paid an undergraduate and so now all of a sudden you get out of anesthesia school and you've got that nice paycheck and it's bigger than anything you see and you get excited. You're like, well, what can I do? I, I can never get through all this money, right? Um, I think we've all probably been there. And it's, it's tempting to want to buy newer and bigger things, upgrade the house. You've been driving around that junker of a car. Let's buy a, a new car, maybe two cars, go on vacations. And what you quickly realize is that that extra salary can disappear very quickly but you have to consider all the expenses. Now you're coming out of school, spending more money. You didn't have those made before when you were working as an RN, maybe just out of undergrad, um, right? You've got higher taxes, make more money, you pay more taxes to the government. You're maybe haven't saved for retirement seriously. So all of a sudden now you're looking at, hey, what's what's retirement? What do I need to put into my 401k? Do I need to save money for other things down the road? you might have a larger mortgage. That's a very quick way to eat up that larger paycheck is by having a larger mortgage. You've got those student loans, right? All of a sudden, you've maybe been deferring a payment on those, or maybe they haven't been accruing some interest, and all of a sudden, there's interest on those. And you're looking at, well, okay, I got to start paying those off. Am I going to pay them off quickly, or am I just going to pay the minimum and just pay them off for the next couple of decades? You potentially need a new car. You've got continuing medical education, you've got dues, licenses, you want to go to a conference, all this costs money. Um, you start looking at disability insurance, things that you maybe never thought of, you were just working as a nurse, but you want to protect your skill set through disability insurance. If you have people that depend on you, life insurance, if you're doing 1099 work, you might have malpractice insurance. So all things that you didn't really think about before or need as an RN, so you might look at giving money to charity, and then there's the luxuries, just the things that we're on this earth once. We want to go on vacation, do nice things, uh, treat our family, treat our friends to different experiences. That's a lot of expenses you just went through. So maybe help put that into context for us. So what have you seen to be like the average CRNA income right now? And I know that difference between whether you're working in an urban environment or a rural environment, if you're 1099 or W2, but... well. Salaries have really gone up. I mean, since I've been out for eight years, they've they've gone up. Everyone's done really, really well. Um, you know, at least before the the whole COVID experience. And 
there you can get you could get spend a whole hour talking about the advantages of being 1099 on your own business first yeah being a, a w2 or you know working for for someone else um so there's advantages and disadvantages to to each one of those but when you look at your salary so much of it depends on what part of the country you live in are you in an urban area or are you just in a more expensive state i was looking up just some numbers and these were from 2018 of you know, top paying metropolitan areas for nurse anesthetists. And number two on the list was you know, San Francisco area, right? So the annual mean wage is over 250000 right? I mean, it's a, it's a very good salary no matter where you live in the country. But when you start looking at how expensive it would be to live out in San Francisco, uh, I found numbers that it showed if, if you were in somewhere in Wisconsin, in Madison, Wisconsin, which is a nice town that a hundred and two thousand dollars salary in Madison would need to be two hundred eighty-three thousand dollars to be comparable in San Francisco. Wow. A lot to that has to do with that the housing in San Francisco is well over four hundred percent more than what it would be in Madison. Yeah. And so our, with our profession, there's a lot of jobs that are in more rural areas of the country, and and some people look at they're not as desirable places to live in in rural Wisconsin, rural Iowa. A lot of us love living in those places. But those are some of the places where they have salaries that are maybe just as high, if not higher, than what you would find out in the high cost of living areas of, say, New York or California. And I've and I don't remember where I first heard it, but there's the the location, compensation, and autonomy. So you get to pick two. If you live in a, a nice place to live where there's beaches nearby, a lot of people want to live. Um, maybe you don't have as high of compensation or your compensation's good, but you work in maybe a, a team model where you don't get to do as many things as you'd like. So there's, as nurse anesthetists, I feel like sometimes it's hard for us to have it all where you want to live in a, a really nice trendy area, be able to do all your own cases, not have to work maybe with anesthesiologists and just make the top line wage. And, and so I, I think you have to just kind of put this all in context of, there's very good paying jobs out there. You need to balance the cost of living. Where you want to be with your family? Do you want to be by family? So there's a lot of variables that that go into it, and, and you have to make that best uh, decision for yourself. Just to highlight that, I think that's really interesting. I haven't heard that axiom put out there before. So location, compensation, and autonomy, and you get to choose two, which is super interesting for people to think yeah, about. Yeah, so a lot of the rural areas uh, – you're probably in CRNA independent practices. And so you get your autonomy, your compensation's good because a lot of people don't want to live in say Northern Wisconsin, because a lot of people would say, well, you know, why would I want to live in the sticks? Right. But so you, you just kind of have to look at all the factors that, that go into a job, yeah. especially as a student coming out and, you know, look at sometimes more than just the, we're talking about the whole finances, right? But you can have a great job that pays you a lot of money. But if you're on call 50% of the year and you hate that, you don't like where you're living, you know, is the money really worth it? So it's just a, all things to consider that as a student, you don't necessarily think about all these things, but it, it's a lot of decisions to make. Right. So your second principle is pay yourself first. So what do you mean by that? Uh, so we're talking about saving, right? So you can either save into just a, a checking, a savings account for a rainy day. You can save into retirement. So before we do anything else, like when we elect for our 401k or paycheck, you know, put that money in there. It comes out pre-tax. A lot of times your employer matches it. 
uh, up to a certain degree, right? So that's free money. You put money into your 401k and your employer matches a certain percentage of that. And then you can invest above that. But save before you do anything else. I think most importantly is that you're also saving money so that you have that emergency savings fund. So a lot of times you'll see numbers quoted of three to six months of expenses so that everyone spends a different amount of money every month, but figure out how much you're expending on average that you, that if you lost your job or what we're seeing with this, the COVID experience is that some people that are very stable jobs will all of a sudden a, a surgery center is not doing any cases. They're not allowed. They can't do any cases. Um, do you have enough money to be able to pay your debt, pay your mortgage, put food on the table and not run into trouble where you, you like you said, you, you're defaulting on payments. So building up that emergency savings, I think, especially as a SRNA coming up, have that money cash available, have it in some sort of easy to access savings account, not invested in the stock market that you can use for a rainy day. Then, you know, like we talked about the 401k, so your tax advantage accounts, your 401k, you've also got your Roth or as a, you can do a, a backdoor um, Roth as a high income earner. And it's just different accounts. They have different tax implications. You're trying to maximize your nest egg for retirement and then also your HSA. So a lot of employers have high deductible plans now where you have that health savings account that can be used for healthcare expenses, or you can put money in there. You just save your receipts and, and don't pay your healthcare expenses out of that and let that grow and invest it into your stock index funds or whatever you choose, and then utilize that in retirement for um, healthcare expenses. So it might allow you to retire early or just, and then to pay health insurance out of there. So those are kind of these advantages and HSA, like money is, um, it, it's pre-tax going in. And as long as it's used on healthcare expenses at some point, then it's not tax going out. So we've just got these different buckets that we're trying to fill up with our, our savings money. And then once you do those basics, and if you still have money left over and you've got that nice emergency fund, that cash for a rainy day, you can look at you know investing if you want to pick a few individual stocks. I'm not a huge proponent of that, but sometimes that's kind of fun. It's a little bit like gambling. Otherwise, you can look just look at you know investing in a taxable account, which would be a stock account, but also index funds and just a brokerage account. So you'd pay capital gains on um, that short term or long term, but usually if you just leave it in there and, and let that grow, and it's just another bucket that we're filling. Um, and then my last point on this is is really set this on autopilot. So you, you have your paycheck, you automatically at the beginning of the year take that money out into your 401k, your HSA. Maybe you every month contribute some to a, a savings account or a brokerage account, so that it takes away the human emotion of well. I'm not going to save this money this month. I'll save a bunch more down the road. So it just yeah. takes away that, you know, humans can screw everything up. So by setting on <laughs> autopilot, you automatically get that money, that money saved. And a, a lot of, you see numbers of, you know, how much should I be saving of my income every month? And I've seen, I think 20% is a pretty good number of, if you can save 20% of your income, you're in a good spot there. If you can start getting up into that 30% or as you, over time, pay off maybe your mortgage, your kids are out of the house. If you get that savings rate up to 40, 50%, those are the people that you see that are able to be financially independent in their 40s because they don't have a lot of debt and they've been so good at saving and paying themselves first. Yeah, this this brings up so many good points. Um, so 
one on that, since we're since you just mentioned that, I think one of the most um, valuable books that I've ever read is The Millionaire Next Door, which, as a quick synopsis, basically, you know, two economists looked at people in the United States with a net worth of a million dollars and found out that they look like the people living next door. They're not in the big fancy houses. They're not driving brand new cars, luxury cars. They have saved money and accumulated wealth over time to actually get to a net worth of a million dollars. So, uh, and that most people that are, that have a big fancy house or are driving a fancy car have financed that. And they're actually just driving around a bunch of debt, which is interesting. Um, exactly. the other thing that you said, I think right now, um, the worldwide pandemic of COVID-19 right now, I think has served a really, really deep financial lesson about having that three to six month savings account for emergencies for CRNAs in particular, especially if you're working in a 1099 environment. There are so many CRNAs right now who work primarily uh, in independent practice at outpatient surgery centers that are frankly just out of work because they're not doing elective cases, they're not billing anesthesia time, they're not generating income. And so it's just critical to think about if you're, you know, wherever you are in your career, if you're a student or a CRNA, if you're listening to this podcast and you don't have that three to six month savings, now is the time to begin to save that. Or if you, as soon as you get out of school, as part of this principle of pay yourself first, it's a really critical thing to save up for because it just gives you that buffer and that peace of mind to be able to weather a financial storm. Exactly. And I, I yeah. You're right with the COVID because, you know, the, there's a lot of unknowns right now. And we're used to, I think in our country, pretty predictable. And especially with our profession that you go on like gas works and you look at jobs. And before all this, there's just every state or most states have just pages and pages of jobs and, and the salaries keep going up. And, and so what we're seeing is like, we don't know where this is going to be in the fall. We don't know what it's going to be maybe next year or maybe this, you know, this runs its course. We have a vaccine, but how do we know five, 10 years down the road, there's not going to be something else that comes along and we end up in the same scenario. And so I think it, it's a little bit eye-opening. It has been for me of the importance of being able to have that cash on hand. It's, it's, there's people that say cash is king and in a recession where you have the ability, the flexibility to be able to pay your bills or have an, an investing opportunity that would come along because you've had that cash on hand. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And then I want to highlight one other thing that you said, which was uh, utilizing a health savings account, which is a way to make healthcare payments, which you know many hospitals provide em- employees, including CRNAs, but to save the minimum in there and then to invest that balance that you have into the stock market. So you, can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So for, for 2020, you can put, um, for a family, I know it's, it's, uh, 7,100 per year into an HSA. And and so unlike a flexible savings account is that they used to have, um, where you have to use it within that given year, otherwise you just lose it. This continues to roll over year and year. And so what happens then is, you know, I, I save my receipts right now. So I'm still having healthcare expenditures, but I'm just not touching that $7,100. And so it's, it's growing, it's getting invested. And unfortunately now with our downturn in our economy, which these are going to happen over time, it goes up, it goes down, but you're just investing it like you would your 401k into index funds or whatever you choose. And you're letting that grow, but it went in pre-tax. So you're getting that benefit. And then when you, like I said, I'm saving all my receipts. So when I get to whenever I would need it on healthcare expenditures and retirement, or if something would come along before then, 
Um, you know, I could just even pull those receipts out for a given year and say, write myself a $4,000 check. But that's the whole idea with uh, of the HSA of not touching it and just letting it grow and, and saving those receipts. So it's just another, I've heard it, it's been referred to as a stealth IRA. That's very interesting. So you're saving receipts now that you're going to pull and count as a tax deferment savings years from now, like decades from now. Yeah. Yep. So if you just, I mean, even, even five years down the road, right. So you have, you're out of a job or there's some kind of, you have a financial crunch and you have $15,000 in receipts that you've saved over the year, over several years, you could technically write yourself a check. You're just taking those all out at once instead of doing it along the road. But in time that's grown. And ideally said you wouldn't touch it for years and years and years. And then it's just another, another savings bucket or retirement vehicle. Yeah. I think that's an important thing to think about is that while you're saving that money, the obvious thing is that you're paying cash for your healthcare expenditures, your doctor's visits. You know, if you get sick or if you need to go, you know, get an antibiotic or a medication or something like that, you're paying cash now, but that cash that you're paying is, you know, an expenditure that you have now, but the HSA dollars that you've invested are growing with compounding interest at the market rate that your cash on hand right now does not have the potential to do. So to be able to invest that money opens you up for the benefit of compounding interest over time. Exactly. And and I will say, you know, for some reason, if you've got really, really bad credit card debt, right, you're paying your medical expenses out of your HSA because you're using that other money to pay other debts off. So you, it's not saying that everyone shouldn't right. be using their HSA right, as you go course. along, but it's just, it's, if you've got the ability to pay it out of other funds right now, and you're not racking up credit card debt or something like that, it's, it's, it's just an interesting way of building up some more capital. It's another tool. It's another technique. If it makes sense another for you, tool. then something to think about. So, exactly. um, well, your third principle is called avoiding debt. So, Let's dig into that a little bit deeper. CRNAs come out of school, they have a lot of student debt. So how do you balance the need to pay off debt and become debt-free, avoid new debt, and save for retirement, and then also have a lifestyle that you can enjoy? How do you make that balance? Yeah, and, and sometimes it's a tough balance. And Every person's scenario is different. And when we look at debt, um, some people think all debt is bad, right? If there's something about being debt-free, not even having a mortgage, right? You're able to have need a lot less income to support your lifestyle. If you don't have a mortgage, you don't have a car payment. Um, but I mean, most people have, especially if you're in your 20s, 30s, 40s, a lot of people have a mortgage. And we look at interest rates, right? So your average credit card interest rate is 17%. I mean, that's that's a very, very high interest rate, right? So all, we can pretty much all agree that credit card debt is bad debt. If you're just making the minimum payment on that, you can find calculators online of how much you'll pay over time if you pay the minimum. And it's it's pretty scary numbers. But then there's other debt. We look at student loans. A lot of people come out of school with student loans. College is getting more and more expensive, especially graduate school. You might have 6%, 7% on those student loans. I see things where you know people are able to refinance those nowadays down to a more reasonable amount. And then you look at your mortgages. And with the interest rates dropping. Um, you're seeing people that were refinancing down into the high twos or the low threes. And, and so some people will say, you know what, that's a great interest rate. I'm not going to pay extra on my mortgage because I'm going to invest the rest. So that's kind of a decision that everyone can personally make. Then you've got you know, car payments. 
sometimes those are one, 2%. Now I, now I've been seeing with the uh, advertisements during this crisis now, where they're offering 0%, even some cash back, or you can defer payments to farther down the road. Um, but then we can get back into the, you know, if, if the only reason you're buying a car is because it's a 0% interest rate, um, or if you're buying more car because the interest rate's so low, then maybe we have to look at, you know, do we really need this expensive vehicle? And so I think we have things we all want to buy. Um, just being smart about avoiding debt is like maybe you take on a mortgage, but you look at every every purchase and decide, you know, can I make the payments on this? Um, you know, if I spent less on it, could I just pay cash for it? So I think it's just about being smart. And once we save for retirement, and then we've got that extra money, and we have to decide how we want to spend that and just prioritize paying off debt. And if we want to take on certain types of debt. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, well, your fourth principle has to do with index funds and making some smart financial decisions in terms of investments. So I wonder if you unpack that for us a little bit. Yeah. So a lot of people are familiar with the term mutual funds. So really an index fund is a type of mutual fund. And so all an index fund is, is it's tracking a specific financial uh, market index like the S&P 500, um, the Dow Jones, with an index fund versus just buying, say, hey, stock in a large company like Apple, is you're looking for broad market exposure. So you're buying the kind of the whole stock market, and you're looking at getting low operating expenses and low portfolio turnover, which minimizes taxes. So by buying the, the index funds, you're just kind of buying the whole stock market. Um, so you're not going to get quite the volatility that you would with individual stocks. Instead of buying um, just individual stocks, you're you're buying thousands and thousands of companies. And a lot of times people are, you know, they some people don't believe in the stock market or, you know, why is it going to keep going up? Sometimes you have to have a little bit of faith. But, what, you know, what is a stock? You own part of a business. Businesses have assets, create products. So I keep using Apple because I think everyone understands what Apple is. You know, they create iPads, iPhones, they ship them all over the world. They make new products. People keep buying them. You replace your iPhone every few years. And so by buying these index funds, you're just buying all these different companies and getting exposure to the entire entire stock market. So we talk about, you know, I've seen on, on one of the, the Facebook groups that I follow where people are like, you know, they're, everyone's looking for the hot stock right now, right? We know the market's down. There's got to be a good stock. Cruise lines, airlines are all at a discount, right? Everything's at a discount. Um, there's a lot of market volatility. So people are looking for a way to quickly make that that money. And yeah, you might buy an airline stock. Who knows what happens? It might get double um, o- over time and you're able to walk away with some some money, but it also could go bankrupt, go down to zero. You could walk away with nothing. Um, yeah. First index funds are investing in the whole stock market. The stock market's never gone down to zero, not saying it couldn't still go down to zero, um, but there's a lot of companies. So you're not just hedging your bets on, on one or two companies. And so really, you know, my whole philosophy and the philosophy of other people that I follow is you're investing to stay the course and continually invest. So we're, we're paying ourselves first every month, couple weeks, we're putting money in. We're not trying to market time, right? So a lot of people right now, they want to know where's the bottom of the stock market. You know, when do I pull the trigger? They pulled some money out into cash. They want to invest at the bottom and ride it up to the top. Well, no one has able to be consistently market timing. And if they're telling you they know where the bottom is, they're just telling you a story. So 
you might get lucky, you might guess right, um, but you can't consistently call those market highs and lows. So that's the whole idea is that you're buying these index funds, you're continually investing, you're buying and holding, you're not continually selling, you're riding it out through you know, the bear and the bull markets, you're going to see market volatility. But if the stock market keeps doing what it's done over the last hundred years, that that's the, the market will recover in time. Just keep putting money in, keep saving and using those retirement vehicles. So what other tips would you have for folks in terms of educating themselves and just becoming financially literate since that's your fifth and final principle that you like to teach about? Yeah, there's so many books out there. I think books are a good way to get at it. Um, I haven't even read The Millionaire Next Door. It's one of those on my on my oh, list. Put it on your but, list, man. Um, yeah, so the three books that I think offer some variety, but there's a book, uh, it's called The Simple Path to Wealth. That's probably one of the most basic books, but it goes through the different types of retirement vehicles. It shows you the number of, you know, if you put $10,000 in, you know, in, in the 70s into the index funds and let it ride for 40 years, how much it, it grows by. It, just, it gives some, for someone that doesn't understand finances at all, or even someone that does, it really opens your eyes to the importance of, of saving and, and how to become financially independent. Um, the second one, and this is geared more towards, medical professionals is the white coat investor. Yeah. Uh, and so he has a book and, he, and there's Facebook groups and forums out there, but it's a, a lot of the same stuff it, the index funds using the HSA, the 401k, how to go about all that. But then it also has some really good points in there about insurance products and things that are specific to people in the medical professional versus other professions. And then the, the first kind of book that I read that really got me interested in this was the Boggleheads Guide to Investing. So you'll hear of these, um, the Boggleheads out there, but there's like a website and different forums. And, and that goes into the importance of indexing and breaks it down, but it also goes into a little bit more specific on yeah. um, just investing principles and, and how you can wait towards different things. And so I would say, you know, Simple Path to Wealth, a great book to start with, White Coat Investor. If you feel like you want to read something more and, and learn some more about um, finances, you get the bottlehead's guide to investing. But really, all these books go by the same sort of principle of you know, keep it simple, save early, often avoid debt, um, and invest in low cost index funds. And really, what these books will all show you is that if you save enough money right away and you just keep putting that money in there, no matter what happens, and like I said, unless the, the market goes down to nothing, which then we're not going to be worrying about our retirement funds. Um, we'll have a lot more worries than that. Um, you're going to have money there in retirement and you're going to be able to retire most likely earlier than you thought you could. Yeah. Yeah. We'll put links to all those different resources in the show notes to this uh, podcast. So it's easy for folks to, you know, if you're listening to this in the car or something like that, just float to the website and you'll see the links in the, in the show notes of the podcast for those. How has making these decisions for you and your family just kind of changed your mindset? You know, like money, money can be looked at as a, as a tool, right? I mean, money can, can get, give you the freedom to do certain things, take care of your family, your friends. It, it can give you the freedom to retire. It might give you the freedom. Like you were talking about, um, some of your coworkers that left the job for a different reason for extra money. But like, if you, you reach a point where if you've got money and you've got it working for you, you have flexibility to say, you know what, this job's not going the way I want. Um, maybe you want to go part time. Um, you want to travel a lot more. So money can be a tool 
um, if we use it in the right way. Unfortunately, debt can be one of those things that can just handcuff you uh, and prevent you from making, you know, kind of the these fun decisions and choices in life. Um, ultimately, right, we, we're all on this path and we're at different spots of this path and we all want maybe slightly different things in life, but I think we're all eventually working towards an end and, and, you know, some people never really want to, they love doing what they do and they don't want to retire. Um, but I think just being smart with money gives you the freedom to maybe not have to worry as much about if you lost your job or, um, you know, life circumstances happen and you, you have to go part-time. Um, and so just, it gives you flexibility. If you got enough money, you got it working and you've been saving, um, you're just able to simplify your life. And like I said, I'm not, I, I try to not, I end up spending probably too much time looking at the stock market and seeing what it does, but I, I've been pretty disciplined with not really touching my investments and being influenced by the market going up or down and just letting my money work and putting faith that, you know what, I'm just going to be smart. I'm going to have a high savings rate and, and let things play out. And I think that kind of takes away the, the, the day-to-day emotion of, you know, am I going to have enough money and what do I invest in? So just, just trying to keep it simple and, and let money work for you and become a tool. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, well, Shane, any other advice or tips that you'd like to give CRNAs uh, or anything that you'd like to to mention before we go here and sign off on this topic? So, yeah, I would say out of all, all this is find a way to keep finances simple, right? We can we can make it very complicated, but we can also look at this from a, a very simple way of you know save save as much as you can, have money for a rainy day utilize the different retirement vehicles, um, you know, have insurance, have disability, have life insurance, protect yourself and, you know, in, enjoy your time as you, you go through your career. Um, but use, use that nice salary that you make, make money with money, right? Put your money to work. Um, and, and don't do financial decisions that are going to put you in a place that you're going to regret. And, yeah. and there's a quote here I'll, I'll finish up with, um, that, was in a financial book that was wisdom comes from experience experience is often a result of a lack of wisdom. And unfortunately, right. We all, sometimes the best lessons we learn are when we make mistakes and humans were very quick to uh, get emotion involved. And sometimes when you can just take the emotion out of finances and just let money work and just have some faith you can sit back and enjoy the finer things in life. Yeah, I hear you. One of the adages I always go to is good judgment comes from bad judgment. And whether that's, you know, what you do in the OR as a clinical CRNA or how you manage your money in your personal life, you can learn a lot from that. And hopefully you can learn from the mistakes that other people make, right? So you don't have to make those same mistakes. You can look ahead and take the advice um, from CRNAs and other folks that are at the end of their career and backtrack and make uh, good decisions early on that will have big payoffs in the long run. But uh, well, Shane Garner, thank you so much, man. I'm super stoked that you came on to share your passion and interest on personal finance. And I know that um, folks will get a lot out of this. I think any, any amount of time that we can take out of our busy schedules to just do a little bit of financial planning, get a little bit smarter in terms of how to manage our money that will pay dividends in the long run, not just financially, but from peace of mind and knowing that we're making good decisions that are going to pay off and help us take care of ourselves and our families down the road. Wonderful. Thanks for having me, John. Hey y'all, John here. If you're digging the show, will you take a couple of minutes and drop a review of Anesthesia Guidebook on Apple Podcasts? Your comments and ratings help other people trust the show. 
Also, send a leak to the podcast to your classmates and colleagues. Word of mouth is the best way for Guidebook to grow. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time.